Now that we get into the sermon part, I, I want to start by telling you uh, a bit of an interesting story. Uh, at least I think it's interesting. I don't know what you guys are going to think about it. And this is from several years back when I was in seminary. Uh, those of you again who don't know me, I went to seminary just up the street at a Princeton seminary. And while I was there, probably my favorite time of the year was when we'd have that big community used book sale. I don't know if you've ever seen that. And if you haven't, Basically, what would happen is that uh, one of the school's offices, I think it was the international office, would just spend months and months collecting and soliciting book donations from all the old pastors and academics who lived in and around the town. And then they would sell all of their used books, which would number in the thousands, to the student community for just next to nothing. Now, in my first year at the seminary, I was fresh off my master's in education, so I was already familiar with the idea of wanting to have kind of a comprehensive yet reasonably sized professional library. So when I heard about this book sale, I figured it'd be great. It'd be a good opportunity to start building up my pastoral library in the same way. And, and I thought, quite naively, as it turned out, then, you know, I'd show up on the gym on the day of the sale, find a couple hundred leftover books that have been scraped together. And then maybe among them, I might find one or two that I could start over the next few years using to build a decent kind of professional collection. But when I rocked up to the sale on the day, expecting to find a, a few students kind of quietly milling through a handful of donated texts, what I actually encountered could perhaps charitably be described as absolute bedlam. The seminary's basketball court had been filled wall to wall with enough books that one could safely say that for the weekend at least, Princeton Seminary had effectively gained an entire second library. Thousands of tomes were just haphazardly stacked all around the room in great towering piles of knowledge and wisdom looming over crowds of students below, all of whom were excitedly tearing through pillars and walls of literature and reference material in search of that next great find. As I walked into the room, I was at first, of course, overwhelmed by the, the frantic chaos of the place. But as I adapted to it, I started more to get lost in awe and amazement, not just at the quantity, but the quality of the books that I was seeing. I mean, this was no collection of errant discards. These were entire reference library sets, some well-loved, sure, but many seemingly brand new, untouched, perhaps even unopened. There was an entire section of the gym set aside just for commentaries and another for historical textbooks, stacks of Bibles in every conceivable language just scattered along a wall. I picked up a copy of the Latin Vulgate that was 120 years old. Some of these books were absolutely baffling for how well-kept they were. And it wasn't uncommon to find books that were decades, even centuries old, dusty, sure, and perhaps a bit brittle, but otherwise in pristine condition, despite their age. 
not one to look a gift horse in the mouth myself, I took advantage of their special whatever you can fit in a box for $5 deal, and I filled up the entire back of my car with enough ancient theological texts to potentially either put my home library on some kind of government watch list or maybe to classify it as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Now, on my way out the door with what would be my final box of the day, uh, mostly it fit into my car, mostly, I, I stopped for a minute for a brief chat with a friend of mine who'd been helping to run the sale that day. And I asked him how it happened to be that there could be this many books, all so ancient and presumably valuable, but still in such remarkably good condition. And he explained to me that most of their donations came from retired pastors and academics, most of whom had been given stipends from their churches or schools or other institutions over the years so that they could buy and maintain a big, important-looking library, which in most cases just sat there looking pretty for the entirety of their academic or ministerial careers. Think about that for a minute. Hundreds of books, entire generations of knowledge and wisdom just sitting on a shelf for the, for the look of it. Utterly useless in every practical sense, used only to present the image of wisdom, intelligence, and authority to others, an image maybe even unearned by the pastors and teachers who owned those libraries, who'd never once bothered to read these books that they had adopted as sort of a defensive camouflage rather than embracing them as what the good doctor once called them, the greatest weapons in the world. And think about that. Think about how many sermons might have been written differently if only those books had been used. How many people might have been inspired? How many lives might have been changed or, or even saved had these books just been put to their intended use rather than strung up like so many late season Christmas decorations? How many tepid, uninspiring, lukewarm years of mediocre Christianity and soporific worship might have been exchanged for the resonating call of a Christ whose very name evokes the specter of newness and change? Who? Who could we be today but for all of those books left on the shelf, avoiding wisdom by trying to appear wise? In our passage from Corinthians today, we're presented with an image of Paul whose frustration and annoyance burn like troubling fire against a congregation which has descended into pettiness and infighting. We see Paul being genuinely, legitimately ticked off because these people, a church where he had lived and worked for some time, baptizing people in the name of Christ Jesus, this church has turned upon itself in useless conflict. And at one point, Paul, Paul flat out says, thank God I only baptized the two of you because the unimaginable ridiculousness of your collective behavior would embarrass me directly into the grave long before the Romans get their chance if it were that I had baptized you all. I mean, I... Look, I'm betting that, like me, most of you have probably heard people preach on this passage before. Uh, it's been a popular one for a very long time, particularly among that specific type of Christian clergy who spend their careers aching longingly after that piece that uh, the Reverend Dr. King described as the absence of conflict rather than the presence of justice. And on the first read, it, it kind of does sound like Paul is 
throwing it back to Corinth with that same sort of exhausted parent energy that I have been known to deliver to my own children after breaking up the 95th fist fight in a 10 minute span. But like most scripture, that understanding only really works if you don't look directly at the blinding contradiction at the heart of the passage, which suggests to us that either the Apostle Paul is doing something very different here, or the Apostle Paul is profoundly insane. I mean, think about it. Think about it. If if Paul is dead set on just stop fighting and be nice to each other <laughs> as his theological position, why is he being so mean about it? How is his being so obviously abrasive, even remotely appropriate, as a means to ending conflict within the community? Before we even consider what Paul is actually saying here, and it is important, it is worth noting that even his tone, the frustration of it, the complete I'm done with this nips of it, it serves a purpose. His tone of conflict is meant to be shocking, disruptive, and to a certain extent, silencing. Kind of like when your introverted, quiet, and eternally patient friend suddenly blows up out of nowhere, leaving you stunned into silence as you try to figure out just where exactly that came from. Because that's the thing, <clears throat> excuse me, that's the thing that's missing here in the community of Corinth. That moment of introspective silence. You see, they had become so accustomed to conflict, so expecting of it, so immersed in it, that they had long ceased to question whether each other's thoughts, opinions, or positions had any real validity or worth. They'd stopped bothering trying to see the other side, to understand, to listen to each other. They had entrenched themselves, drawn party lines, declared allegiances to what they were certain they knew, defending themselves with a sort of partisan absolutism that is the last refuge of both the truly determined and the truly demented alike. They had all of them become so certain in their own righteousness, their own goodness, their own correctness, that they had neglected that great discipline of community. Not compromise, not silence, not even that great multi-tool of virtue that is patience, but the very act of listening. And when I say listening, by the way, I don't mean the simple act of allowing another person's words to flow through those nice little head holes that we conveniently use for storing AirPods, you know? Uh, and I don't mean the act of listening carefully to another person so that you can gather enough information to manipulate or convince them to exchange their perspective for yours. And I certainly don't mean the act of listening as a kind of semantic trench warfare, the way far too many of us do it today, where you're listening defensively, waiting for the other person to say something you can use as ammunition to throw back into their face with gleeful rage, as though you've just slapped them with an Uno reverse card in the middle of what was supposed to be an actual human conversation. Now, what I'm talking about here is listening as the act of taking in the fullness of another person's perspective and seeking to see the human being at the heart of it all, with all their worries and concerns and hopes and fears, so that we could embrace them fully and seek to move forward together with mutual care and respect. Now, that kind of listening is a very different thing indeed 
And what makes it different is that it asks more of us than any other kind of listening does. The book of James probably says it more clearly than most when it implores us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for human anger does not produce God's righteousness. That's asking a lot, especially when we realize that being quick to react and quick to anger is something that's hard-coded into each of us. It's a built-in facet of our own evolutionary biology. Apex predators sitting at the top of an entire planet's food chain don't usually benefit from being patient and quiet and compassionate listeners, especially when we haven't been blessed with overwhelming strength claws or teeth. Whether you think of it as by sin or by design, the nature of humanity is to labor by the sweat of our brows for thorns and thistles, which means, among a great number of other things, that compassionate communication, it doesn't come naturally to us. And in order to accomplish it, we have to set aside those pieces of ourselves that demand we do otherwise. Deeply held instincts and desires which masquerade as righteousness and truth in our minds that tell us that we need to fight for what is ours, to fight for what is good and true and holy, and that if there is any reconciliation that is to be had, it will be by all others coming to the table we have built and never the other way around. We all love to have an open table, so long as it's our table, right? But it's not our table. It's Christ's table. And that table, which is built out of an old wooden cross, seems like foolishness to those perishing in the fires of conflict and hatred because the person who God has invited to sit down isn't that collection of theologies, political positions, arguments, biases, prejudices, and hatreds that we've all built up around our hearts and minds and called a personality, wrapping ourselves up in it like a toddler wearing their father's suit to try and look more grown up. What's invited is the beautiful, innocent, deeply emotional, and deeply loving child of God at the core of us, who's been buried for far too long under all the other stuff that we cocoon ourselves in to mask our vulnerability in a deeply painful and hurtful world. You know, right around the time my wife and I got married, which was actually, honestly nearly about 15 years ago, we were taking all of those premarital and postmarital classes as one does so that we could learn everything we could about how to communicate with and understand each other. I mean, in truth, it was probably the smartest thing we did in those days. As a couple of kids in our early 20s, smart wasn't always in ready supply. Uh, so I'm always proud when I can report on my young self having made a good decision. Uh, but as a newlywed couple, and one from wildly different language and cultural backgrounds too, I mean, my wife's Japanese, we decided to go all in on any counseling, any church group, or any activity that was based around helping newlywed couples figure each other out. And one of the first things I learned in one of those classes was something that I have heard repeated in just about every pastoral care course I've attended, every counseling training session I've been to, and every book I've read on interpersonal conflict, anger, and all of those moments of seemingly irreconcilable differences that arise between people. And it's simply this. When we get angry, when we find ourselves in conflict with each other, the true root of our feelings, the core of what we're hurt and angry about, it's almost never the thing that we're actually fighting about. It's almost always something else, something other, something deeper 
that drives us to fracture the bonds that connect us to each other, to, to draw swords rather than draw close to each other. You see, most of the conflicts we have with each other are proxy wars. We pick some high-stakes sounding idea, some grand piece of world-changing high-stakes rhetoric, some theological point or justification, some big thing. And we make that the thing that we're arguing about, because if we really were to boil it down to the thing that's actually bothering us, the cold, dark, and scary emotion that grips our heart like a vice in the dead of night, that thing usually sounds to us in the true and unyielding light of day. It sounds childish, more than a little absurd. I mean, when we stand up and say, you have made a mockery of my values and disrespected the God of my fathers, it sounds like a much more suitably grown-up reason to feel hurt and offended. Much more suitable than, say, what you just said made me feel small and it hurt my feelings. And saying what we're really feeling, it makes us sound like we're three years old. And as serious grown-up people, we just can't have that. So we build on it, and we twist it, and we make it into something far bigger than it ever was, far bigger than it ever needed to be, just so that we don't have to endure the embarrassment, the humiliation of working through our wounded pride, admitting that we are hurt or sad, and then working towards healing and reconciliation by admitting that our own hurt almost certainly causes us to say or do something that hurts someone else in the exact same way. The first sacrifice that is required to make a community unified in God's justice and united under God's love is our own selfish and stubborn pride. Because being together, whether that's in a relationship, a church, a community, a nation, or even an entire planet, being together requires spiritual and interpersonal openness and emotional vulnerability. The great challenge of a true and loving community is that conflict is never resolved. Reconciliation is never obtained through strength of argument leading to a decisive victory but always gained through a connection born of honesty, openness, and emotional vulnerability. The struggle in Corinth there is the same struggle of those revered and respected and retired pastors and professors who were perpetually feeding that great used book sale, living a life of conflict and confusing because you were so wrapped up in personal pride of appearance that you wind up accomplishing far, far less than you ever could have. If you just admitted you didn't actually know what you were talking about, turned around, grabbed a book off the shelf, and read the stupid thing. But for most of us, giving up that pride, it's more than we can bear. Being that degree of vulnerable, being that degree of open, especially in sight of the whole public community, it's a kind of anguish, and an anguish that we can't suffer. A darkness from which we fear we might never emerge. But in Christ, there is no gloom for those in anguish, but a great light shined into the darkness that engulfs us. Where others might fear the soul-rending darkness of vulnerability and self-sacrifice, we who follow Christ know no such fear. The power we are given in Christ isn't the strength to proclaim on the street corners, the perseverance to endure persecution, or the boldness to speak harsh and difficult truths in holy and divine conflict. The power of God is not made perfect in our boldness, our brashness, or our willingness to defend to the death the very things we hold most dear. Oh no, oh no. The power of God is made perfect in weakness, made perfect in vulnerability, 
God's power is made perfect every time we look to another person, even the great perpetrators of injustice in our world, and sing to them of our own failures, lay bare our own pain to them. God's power is perfected every time we show our full and true selves to each other, lay bare our hurt and broken humanity, and then look and see where others' hurt and pain might be on full display as well. We, we are not the keepers of doctrine, the guardians and protectors of the faith, even in a time where there are truly good and legitimate reasons for actual conflict, things against which all Christians must and should rise to speak on behalf of the poor and the wounded and the oppressed and the suffering who stand to lose so much to the excesses of the wealthy few. Even still, ours is not to draw the battle lines. <laughs> ours is not to pursue the righteousness of our cause to its clear, bitter, painful end. We aren't the keepers of righteousness, but we are our brother's keeper. Like I'm deeply and keenly aware, uh, maybe even more so than most, that pointed and powerful rhetoric does not make an effective solution. Conflict and division are the seemingly insurmountable challenges of the day, and no sermon I could ever preach is going to provide us an end to this difficult period in the history of our culture, our nation, even our world. But what Paul does here in Corinthians, giving them the space to stop and think, it gives us a glimpse of the light that's talked about in Isaiah, the light that's made manifest in Christ Jesus. It shows us a way forward that isn't simply just winning the battle against those who we may rightfully disagree with but one which calls upon us to sacrifice our pride and approach each other with the sort of honest vulnerability that would make Elon Musk faint with fear and Fred Rogers clearly cheer with glorious and supportive glee. Victory through love and compassion fought with the tactics of openness and emotional vulnerability. A war ended without a single shot fired. Just as a, a library serves no purpose unless someone's using it, so too does our faith serve absolutely no purpose unless we are opening ourselves to the radical, vulnerable, self-sacrificial love that Christ calls forth from us. Our faith is as useless as those old pastors' libraries when we use it as a, as a bludgeon to fight back against others, when we use it to draw lines of attack and defense, to man the battlements, cry havoc and let loose the dogs of holy war. But when we approach each other, even when we approach our enemies with a silencing vulnerability, with honesty and with openness, looking to find the true heart, the real person, the little kid that lies at the root of the fellowship that is broken between us, that is when we truly grow to be the community we are called to be in Christ Jesus. Amen.